Hello, my name is John Haslam and I'm publisher for Politics, International Relations and Sociology at Cambridge University Press. Uh, welcome to this podcast where I'm talking to Anthony King, Professor of Sociology and Chair of War Studies at the University of Warwick. Much of Tony's career has been spent studying the people and the processes of the military at very close quarters, talking to soldiers, advising policymakers and thinking about how military units work. We're here to discuss the latest product of his labours, his new book, Command, the 21st Century Gen General. Welcome, Tony. Hello, thank you. Right, I thought I'd start by um, sort of the problem that you pose um, at the start of the book and throughout, the perception of a, of a crisis of command. Is there a, a crisis of generalship? And um, if so, what, what does, makes up this crisis and, and why has it come about? Uh, y y yes, um, I mean the book begins with 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 a with a problem, namely that there's a wide public perception um, that command at the highest levels, at the highest strategic levels, of the military and indeed political and civil powers ha in the West has dramatically failed uh, since the 9-11 attacks in 2001, and uh, this is borne out by. Um, uh, disappointing to say the least campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan some might say disappointing others would say um, disastrous and potentially illegal uh, so we have um, from almost immediately after uh, the Iraq invasion in particular, so from 2003 onwards, an increasing um, set of discussions in the media um, among public policy makers and most interestingly, of course, uh, among uh, military personnel, especially retired officers, complaining and, and criticising uh, generalship and command, strategic level command, uh, in that entire decade, to, to, to uh, 2003 onwards. And, and, and that discourse continues uh, to this day. Now, interestingly, it is matched by a, another set of practice more hidden, which is while there has been intense scrutiny and concern about command at the very highest level, decisions to invade Iraq, for instance, uh, decisions to withdraw from Syria, uh, decisions about the Afghan campaign at the highest level, it's been matched by something of a paradox that at the lower level, the theatre level command, at the level of the operations, what we've seen in the Western US-led uh, coalitions is actually a uh, highly competent and professionalized command uh, which is delivered quite effectively at that tactical and operational level so absolutely there seems to be a crisis of command at the strategic level but combined with a operational virtuosity and also of course closely raises this a, a strong feeling that the execution of military command at that theatre level has changed from the 20th century. And that was the problematic that started me on the book and started me interested in the question uh, question of command. Right. So that's interesting. So you think that generals at, at the, the lower level, the, the, uh, the unit level, the, the divisional level, had maybe got a bit of a bum rap um, and the uh, criticism was overblown? Uh, yeah, I mean, it must be said that if we look at most of the discussions, most of the discussions operate a much higher level. If you look at the Chilcot mm. inquiry, the Chilcot inquiry really does not criticise many um, lower level theatre commanders. 
there are a couple of notorious uh, exceptions to this, uh, but uh, but uh, the theatre level commanders uh, at, at the sort of divisional core level um, are generally uh, seem to have done at least an adequate job, or minimally, say in the case of someone like George Casey, uh, in, in, who is the commander in Iraq, uh, immediately before Petraeus in the period 2005 to seven. Um, he did not do a great job in terms of the campaign, but he did precisely what he was being told by the White House. So right. uh, he was a, uh, a, you know, George Casey is a tragic historical figure in some ways. He's a, he's a totally competent officer who was doing what he was told, but the political direction couldn't work. Right. Um, so 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 we, we 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 see this split now there's another crucial element to the to the setting up of the book which is of course what happened after Iraq and Afghanistan in result in response to the difficulties of those campaigns is that uh, the led by the US Army but followed by uh, the UK and the French um, that a specific level of command was seen as requiring empowerment right. and that level of command was the level of division a right. force of about 20,000 troops and, right. and what has been happening in the last five years is the UK, uh, uh, US and France have been trying to empower that divisional level, kind of sub-theatre level, campaign level commander uh, so that they're able to conduct better operations in right. the future. Right. So, yes, I mean, that's the yeah the second aspect of the book that is, is to do with change. Um, and the subtitle is um, 21st Century General. So what is this, this new... Uh, this changing uh, nature of the 21st uh, century divisional commander looking like compared to the uh, 20th century and even the 19th century general? Well, for sure. Um, I mean, what, what, what I think is important here is it, it's important to get beyond issues of personality. It's, you know, there's right. some excellent, outstanding biographies of generals, both contemporary uh, stories about uh, David Petraeus, obviously McChrystal, um, uh, which are excellent studies. And obviously there's very famous studies of 20th century generals, Montgomery, Rommel, etc. Um, what I as a sociologist was trying to do was to get away from a personalised account that somehow generalship inhered in the personality and the character of the general, although uh, that personality character is not irrelevant. What I was interested in is trying to look at more structural, uh, organizational features of command. Command as a capacity for decision-making, creating organizational cohesion. So for me, the critical issue was um, the reformation of the character, the structure of the military organization and military campaigns. And, right. and my essential argument would be this. In the 21st century, uh, military operations have become, uh, have extended in range, have extended in terms of complexity, the number and types of forces deployed. It's no longer a divisional commander, the focus of the book, is no longer commanding simply 20,000 of his own soldier, uh, soldiers. They are commanding 15 or 20,000 soldiers organized and dispersed over a large area. There are helicopters, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, air power. They have to consider informational, psychological operations, civil operations, political engagement, all within the same area. And so the organizational structure and the organizational problem for a 21st century general is different from that of a 20th century general organizing an industrial mass hierarchical military right. on industrial mass operations. Right. So that 
organizational focus was the one that I wanted to bring out. Okay. Personality is not irrelevant, but that was the key for yes. me. Yes, sure. Because you use this phrase post-heroic. Um, and it seems from what you said, you don't think that somebody like Mattis is, is inherently less heroic a figure uh, than Montgomery or Rommel or somebody like that. Absolutely um, not. I got into a lot of trouble in interviews using the term. <laughs> so you can understand that people like James Mattis and David Petraeus, both whom I interviewed in the research, yeah. were pretty unhappy about not being uh, described as heroic. And, and this wasn't narcissistic. Uh, what they worried about is that somehow the idea of a post-heroic general suggested that they were not responsible for the actions of their soldiers and marines under their command and they did not bear ethical responsibility for right. operations and that for them was was absolutely anathema and therefore they object to the term but the idea of post heroic came from look every look that's famous essay in 1995 it was slightly tongue-in-cheek hmm. but what it was trying to point to was a move from a highly charismatic individualized personalized system right. to a system based on professionalized collaborative collective processes of decision making and execution and they don't object to that characterization um, well they, they... now that was interesting um, that many did not uh, but there were interesting uh, there were interesting debates that I had actually with both general uh, Petraeus and and general Madison that they absolutely affirmed their supreme authority um, but in the course of the discussions, one of the most interesting things in the course of discussions with them and with other generals such as uh, Nick Carter in Britain uh, was that while um, there was absolutely no possibility of dividing responsibility, uh, the ultimate responsibility, the authority uh, for an operation, um, so the, the supreme responsibility right. resided only with the divisional commander, with Petraeus or Mattis or Nick Carter, um, they could at certain moments devolve their minor bits of authority downwards. Right. And at that point, we started to come into alignment with each other. That, no, that the idea of a post-heroic general of a collective uh, command system was not suggesting that generals now commanded by committee, but that elements of the decision-making process were devolved to subordinates and to staff officers within strict parameters and strict guidance. And at that point, although they would never use the term post-heroic, and as I say, reacted very violently to <laughs> it, um, they actually, I, I think we came into some kind of coherence uh, with each other. And that was an interesting process. Right. And it was a very important process for me in, the, in terms of the research. Sure, sure. So we've got this context that, that um, is leading to this, this new, type, new type of generalist um, generalship um, to do with technology and communications, um, but also presumably the type of warfare you're fighting. Um, well, these these people were um, fighting. They they fought a war, for example, invading Iraq, but then they were involved in counterinsurgency. Presumably, that leads to different different um, um, contexts and structures, and and what's realistic and possible for them. For sure, for sure, and this is a very important point. Uh, the prime form of warfare uh, which Western states and indeed 
um, all states have been engaged in the last two decades has been um, civil conflicts, counterinsurgency, counter-terrorism. Uh, and there is absolutely no question in terms of my research that you see devolved, collective, professionalized, post-heroic, whatever word uh, you want to use, whatever adjective you want to use, most developed uh, in terms of counterinsurgency campaigns. Why? Because uh, the span of military activity fuses into an odd, ambiguous civil and political area. And it's necessary for commanders like David Petraeus in, um, in Mosul or Nick Carter in Kandahar to devolve, devolve authorities downwards into these odd areas of military activity. But what I'd suggest the really interesting finding of my research, and this is where I was really fascinated to talk to figures like James Mattis. With James Mattis, we did not talk about his work subsequently. He returned to uh, Iraq in 2004, was engaged in the first clearance of Fallujah in early hmm. 2004, April 2004. We did not talk about that operation, that stabilization operation. Mattis is interesting because he's engaged in war fighting. So uh, the research that I did on James Mattis focused on the march up, on the invasion of Iraq, uh, on 1st Marines Division assault from Kuwait to Baghdad. Now, Yes, and you have a chapter devoted to that. Yeah. Exactly. And why is that interesting? Because it's the only example we have of what war fighting by a US-led coalition is going to look like and did look like in the early 21st century. Right. And the point there, which, which struck me as, as, as apposite and important, was that although no one's questioning uh, Matt's domination, of that formation, nor his charisma or the potency of his personality, um, that in order to stage this extraordinarily complex operation of driving uh, 20,000 Marines in 8,000 vehicles 300 miles against an enemy, okay, not a very effective enemy, Mattis would be the first to admit it, but against an enemy, he had to institute decisions of devolved decision-making, but also integrated decision-making at different levels which struck me as very is novel and actually different from a 20th century system. So right. we had a war fighting system of generalship that did not just repeat the first, second world war uh, or Korea. Okay, and that's so, why, so why it was interesting. Right. So that would suggest that, that it's not just a legacy of, of diffuse and confused um, counterinsurgency type warfare. You think this is the way wars will be fought um, in the future, for the foreseeable future. Um, using this using this model, um, I mean, is is the collective leader this sort of model of the collective leadership one for you know the next twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years? What comes next? What's well, well, what's well, the what's I, the prospect? I would be cautious about the about going out to thirty, forty years. Uh, but what I would certainly say is, for the next decade, maybe the next fifteen years. Um, the, the West, led by the US, has committed itself uh, to a system of land generalship, especially at the divisional level, uh, which accords with the method that Mattis used in 2003 in, in, in Iraq, and which is a highly professionalized, collectivized system. Why is that the case? Because even when Western forces are training right now, to engage in high-intensity warfare, be it in, on the Korean Peninsula, in the Baltics, or potentially in other some other Asian Pacific uh, theatre, uh, 
the nature of the military instrument has become so complicated and heterogeneous with right. not just land forces, but land combined with maritime and air, that it is, it is impossible for a command to sit on top of a simple industrial vertical hierarchy as they did in the 20th century and essentially supervise and direct operations autonomously. There is a requirement for devolution, but also crucially, as I say, for the integration, the ever closer integration of decision making and decision makers of commanders across the levels. And so what I'd suggest out to 2030, out to 2035, um, I would suggest that the system of decision making that we see, the system of command of generalship that someone like uh, James Mattis exemplified in 2003, and in fact, that has accentuated in the last decade, um, will be the one that the West fights by. Is that an effective decision, of deci uh, effective system of decision making of generalship against a near peer opponent? We don't know. I mean, all of the exercises that the US and the UK are doing at the moment, which are which some of which are high intensity exercises, demonstrates it is possible and effective. We, we have no data on that. It is possible that it will be proved that it's not an effective system of decision making, but that is the one to which Western powers have committed themselves. Right. So they've adopted it consciously and they're, uh, it's a forward looking um, system of, uh, that they're going to keep with for the, for, for the near future. Yeah. I mean, empirically for the, for the project, um, for the project and for the book, uh, this was a very important point. I mean, the last three or four years, in addition to interviewing people who had uh, served in Afghanistan and Iraq, I attended a, 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 a significant number of British, American and French exercises and the kinds of professionalized, collectivized systems of decision making involving very large staffs, devolving decision making into current operations centers, devolving decisions down into deputy uh, commanding generals. Um, this is a system that is being rigorously institutionalized and it must be said rigorously tested. Right. The results of high intensity exercises are that, um, yeah, this is every uh, military system has its problems, but it is actually effective and it has proved effective. Um, and, and you can look at something like three UK division did a big exercise this year in America called Exercise Warfighter. They have effectively a, a, a system of command, I would call it a collective system of command, professionalized collective system of command. They performed exemplary in the in the exercise and it was proven as a system of command on complex high intensity operation right okay so uh, one of the themes that comes out of the book partly i would guess because you are a sociologist was that you were interested in leadership 21st century leadership more generally as compared to uh, 20th century leadership. Um, I mean, let, let's start off this discussion with, with something that, that people have noted, which is that generals have taken roles in the American government. They've done it for many years. We've had, you know, going back to Washington, you know, Grant, Powell, um, Colin Powell. But it's been a real feature of Trump's administration. You've had people you've spoken to, Mattis, um, yeah. you've had Kelly, you've had McMaster. Um, what does this say about um, Trump? What does it say about the generals? Um, is, is there a look of still this sort of sheen of the heroic general there? And, and what does it mean that they, they really haven't lasted very long? Uh, well, I mean, it, the, the question raises a lot of important points and, and many of them, of course, uh, you know, my monograph, my work was exclusively on 
uh, military on the military and in fact on armies and marine uh, forces on land forces so I mean many of these very interesting questions go beyond the actual precise and immediate content of my research uh, but but they are crucial questions and interesting questions so, so it's worth considering them I mean at one level um, uh, although it's not always easy to read uh, Donald Trump's motivations in many cases I mean, at one level um, uh, he, the, the U.S. military at this point is the most powerful it's ever been uh, in its history um, in terms of its professional competence. Its generals are, I would put it to you, uh, uh, the most competent there's ever uh, American generals have ever been. And that includes mm. some of the some of the luminaries from the Second World War. Um, and indeed, I would put it in historic terms. I, I mean, I absolutely would say the U.S. Uh, Army, the U.S. Armed forces, especially the Army and the um, and uh, and the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, are among the finest forces historically that we have ever seen. So mm. their officer corps is of extraordinary quality historically and in in, in absolute uh, terms. So it's understandable that a president, especially a president of Trump's somewhat vain type would like to be surrounded by a Praetorian guard of proven combat veterans and generals and and their competence and excellence has been proven in Iraq and Afghanistan um so I think there was a a, a legitimatory um element to that and potentially a, a vain point so and I think I think that I I, I think that that uh, that's why they got appointed. I think also we can explain uh, their removal in terms of their professionalism as well. Mm. At a certain point, um, uh, one of the key things uh, that's very strong in the US military is the, the ability to tell truth to power, to be able to engage in open dialogues which one, with one senior commander. Collective command requires that subordinates have trust with their senior commander. That trust requires an open dialogue where subordinates can question, develop, uh, alter the commander's mind can inform and help a senior commander. Clearly, that's the that's the experience that that McMaster, mm. Kelly, and Mattis all had in their own military experiences. Not one which is characterised by the current White House administration. Yes. So I think I think that 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 is an issue. Now, there's a further issue, which is this: um, What are we going to do about democracy and political power and political leadership and authority uh, in the West in the in the early 21st century? I mean, it's widely seen that democracy is in crisis, Brexit, Trump, uh, various other problems within um, within Europe in terms of rise of the right in Germany, uh, the, the Gilets jaunes uh, in France. Um, there is a there does seem to be a fundamental problem with political authority and um, and democracy and and although my work was military, I do think it raises certain questions about how we administer, how we um, manage and direct not just military operations but actually political life. Um, our own wider civil organisations and civil society and the economy. And for me, uh, there's, I, I might even suggest there's a part, two paths. One is a path which is looking increasingly likely, a path towards uh, some form of, of authoritarianism, and certainly yes. that is the fa increasingly favoured model globally. The other seems to me to be some reformation of the executive. The question is this, and it is a question, it's a proposal, it's nothing cert more certain than that, a hypothesis perhaps. 
maybe it's possible to rectify, to redeem Western democracy through the institution of, of more professionalized collective systems of leadership, management and administration, i.e. where it's worked for the military, highly complicated organizational problems have generated mm. this organizational solution of a professionalized command system. Perhaps that's that's possible in terms of Western yeah. democracies more widely over the administration of the economy, etc. Um, whether that's possible is an open question. Yeah. But would the, that was one of the questions yeah, the book yeah, put, I think. Sure. But one of the questions there might be uh, one of the reasons for um, the rise of populism um, and, you know, the, the, you know, the rise of the, the strong leader um, in various parts of the world has been a reaction against that sort of technocratic approach um so um how do you see that sort of playing well, out well quite though of course my point about a collective command system in the military it's not it's not it's not technocratic or not just technocratic right uh, it is effective and has an intensely human and social character and what i'd say over the last um, 20 years in terms of Western democratic systems that they've fallen between two stools of both becoming impersonalized and technocratic and also proving themselves at various points to be incapable of solving the extremely difficult problems which they increasingly face. Right. Okay. Um, I think I'd like to sort of, as we're drawing to the end here, to, to ask you a little bit about the practicalities of, of how you, how this, how this um, book was made, as it were. Um, it's obviously not just a think piece. You spend a lot of time with, with archives and yeah. documents, and, um, but also visiting with, with militaries around the world, um, French, American, um, yeah. UK. I mean, how did you find that? You've obviously done it before throughout your career, but, um, you know, was it, how do they react to somebody um, coming in and, and questioning the very nature of what they're, what they're doing? Um, well, it, it, it's interesting you ask. I mean, uh, one of the myths of, of social research is that access is always a problem and is always the barrier. I've never found it to be remotely a problem in terms of my research and, and my latest research on the armed forces would be included. Now, that's not to say there are not transnational barriers. There are mm. international borders, linguistic and also in terms of military uh, security barriers and also, in fact, just simple social ones of of, of who you know and and and, and what you know. Uh, but in fact, I found that um, what I did was to run, set up a series of links within British Army, and particularly um, three UK division, Britain's warfighting division, and and by attaching myself, and I am utterly grateful to the British Army and to three UK division for its help and hospitality. Mm. But by situating myself alongside a military, uh, alongside a military node in an international transnational network, I was able quite quite comfortably to move along internationally uh, uh, along the, the the sort of lines of that of that network so on the basis of three uk uh, divisions connection to 82nd airborne i was able to visit fort bragg on some connections with the royal marines i was able to visit camp pendleton first marine division and the same in france with the um first attack my de force the first uh, french uh, uh, first division um so um the, the the there was the the access was not difficult what i found in every case um was extraordinary hospitality and openness and actually right. 
people were extremely interested that I was interested in them. I mean, right. the fact is that in my previous military search, it was all obviously military activity, people firing off weapons and clearing buildings. Um, the interesting thing, the paradoxically interesting thing I found about this research, it was research into headquarters. That's the yeah. headquarters are machines for command. You're talking about very mundane activity. Right. PowerPoint <laughs> slides, yes. a lot of paperwork, yeah. a lot of meetings. They are ostensibly very dull and boring activities, um, which actually for me became deeply fascinating. I think yeah. the military was both surprised and delighted that I found apparently highly boring administrative <laughs> procedures, um, sink, matri sink matrices, um, <laughs> orders, uh, maps, right. really tedious, apparently tedious and mundane objects and activities. I, I found them utterly fascinating. And I, actually, I think the military, um, if I infer correctly, I think the military uh, found it somewhat amusing and, and uh, <laughs> of, of interest that, that, that a scholar was was that deeply interesting. I mean, the other mm. thing is I spent so much time with them that I became a sort of fixture in terms of, of, of the annual exercise. In fact, the exercise right. were more than annually, but every six months uh, there'd be an exercise and I became a kind of fixture within these. So mm. it, the, the relationship became very normalized and, yeah. and it was, it was, a, it was a fact, it was, it proved to be a fascinating uh, project. Right. Paradoxically, because it was about something that was mainly so dull and boring. <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't always dull, was it? Because I think you were. You weren't just at headquarters um, well, at Fort Bragg or at training exercises. You were in. You were in um, well, combat zones for for some of no, it. I well, mean, presumably that's a different experience. Project, absolutely, the start of the project. If I think about it, absolutely was. Um, I I um, worked for General Carter in Kandahar when he was commanding a division. Uh, or an equivalent of a division in Kandahar. And I, I spent quite a bit of time in 2009 and 10 in his headquarters. Um, now that was, that was that was a proper operation. And that was in a way, although paradoxically, I didn't quite realize that was the start of the project. That was the start of the project, but I was actually working and living in an operational headquarters. I mean, it was right. an operational headquarters of a bizarre, um, a bizarre type in that uh, the provision of facilities uh, one would have thought one was at home in in, in, in the US with pizza places and coffee yeah. shops but it was that that was that was a concrete experience of of command which proved to be very useful in thinking through some of the problems and around which uh, many of the issues and questions that I subsequently developed uh, would, would germinate in Kandahar in 2009 right. uh, uh, okay. um, which was which had its moments a few rocket attacks and various other moments so yes. it, was, it was a slightly more interesting yes. uh, experience yes. um, in, in the bad sense of the word that's right yes and so not 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 a post heroic experience particularly um, no certainly not post heroic no he would certainly not describe himself as such no absolutely um, Right. Well, I think uh, that's we're running up against the clock. Um, thanks very much for your time, Tony. Um, it just remains for me to let listeners whose appetite may have been whetted to know that the book is is published shortly in paperback, um, and you can find further details of Tony's arguments and stories from his encounters with twenty first century generals um, in that book. Thanks very much again, Tony. Thank you. Thanks, John.